God, as we gather here this morning, we uh, declare to you that we not only need, but we want something from you. God, we gather here because we desperately want you to, to speak to our hearts. God, we want you to reveal your word in a way that instructs us and exhorts us and encourages us. God, that's not something that we can do on our own strength or our own ability. So we desperately need you today. God, we need your spirit to enlighten us. We need your spirit to guide us into the truth, to fill us with all wisdom and understanding. So God, do the work that only you can do through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we conclude our four-week sermon series that we've been in this month on the topic of busyness called Mind uh, Your Busyness. Next week, we're going to kick off a new sermon series traveling through the book of Nehemiah, uh, which really expository preaching, verse-by-verse preaching is uh, our normal preaching diet here at College Park Fisher. So looking forward to diving um, back into a book of the Bible um, right before we transition into our new building. Um, but today we, um, we conclude this series that we've been looking at. And before we uh, kind of talk about more of the, the practical um, tools for living uh, a grace-paced life, I just want to summarize what we've learned uh, so far over these first couple of weeks. Just a reminder that uh, we're addressing this topic because God cares about the rhythm and the pace of your life. And because busyness is pervasive, because it's, uh, it's all over our culture and it's all over um, even our very lives, uh, lives, busyness is really one of the greatest but sneakiest dangers to our spiritual growth. And busyness doesn't automatically make you unfaithful, but nor does it make you automatically fruitful. What's important is what's driving your busyness and what's underneath uh, your busyness. Even Jesus uh, was busy. Even Jesus had many demands and expectations that were placed um, upon his life during his earthly ministry. But Jesus was able to maintain a a healthy rhythm and a healthy pace. Uh, Jesus knew the difference between what was important compared to what was urgent. And Jesus also knew the dangers of busyness. And so we looked at three of those, I think the first week, that busyness um, has the ability to crowd out obedience in our lives that busyness can distract us from tending to our own soul, and that busyness oftentimes leads us into isolation. So we looked at those dangers, but we also noted that there is a difference between an outward busyness and an inward hurriedness. And the key difference there is looking at what's underneath your pace, what's driving all of it. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at these four common unhealthy driving forces to our our hurriedness or our busyness. Sometimes we have these trust issues with God, or we have fear of man issues, or a mistaken identity, or even a deep restlessness that, that tends to drive our pace and drive our busyness. But busyness is really about the condition of our hearts and not our calendars. And so that's why last week uh, we looked at Luke chapter 10 at really what should be the the number one priority of our lives, what should be the the foundation of a grace-paced life, and that is to spend time at the feet of Jesus, to make sure we are consuming his presence, consuming his words, because that shapes everything else about our lives. And so today, I really just want to build off of that foundation. Each week has kind of built off the previous one. And I really just want to answer the question, what does a grace-paced life actually look like? 
In other words, what is a, a life that is motivated by the gospel of grace compared to the busy trap? What does that look like practically? And I think that there are three marks of a grace-paced life that I'm going to point out from Ephesians chapter 5. As we're kind of diving into Ephesians 5, it's important to note that Paul has been in this dialogue since chapter 4, where he has been explaining what a life worthy of our calling actually looks like. What does a life worthy of the gospel look like practically? And I find it so fascinating that even in chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, Paul talks about our concept of time in connection to godly living. He, he uh, puts an emphasis here on making the best use of our time because it's directly connected to our godliness. And so looking at these three marks of a grace-paced life, the first one that I want to point out is that this individual has an eternal perspective on time. In fact, notice the urgency in Paul's language here, starting in verse 15, that Paul uh, uses the language of look carefully then how you walk, or some translations have pay attention to how you're living, be precise in how you're living. Now we all want that. We all wanna make sure that we're intentional with how we're living, but the way that we do that, Paul says, is not as unwise, but as wise by making the best use of our time. And the reason why we want to make the best use of our time is according to Paul, he says, because the days are evil. Now, why are the days evil? The days are evil because there are people in this world who believe that this life is all that there is. And so if this life is all that there is, they're going to live it up the best that they know how, kind of the, the YOLO mentality, you only live once, right? So let's, let's make the most of it. And so they are participating in, in acts of darkness, but also Paul is saying this because we are living in the last days. So Paul here, I think, is making a, an important connection between our perspective on time indirectly impacting our pursuit of godliness. Or you could say it this way, according to a, kind of our sermon series, that our busyness is sometimes tied directly to our perception of time. In fact, Kirby Anderson in this uh, Leadership University publication make the statement that time has become the most precious commodity in the land talks about this, this idea in, in this article, the, the expression that time is money is a statement that really has always been true. But over the last couple of decades, it's carried on this nuance uh, where time is actually much more valuable than money now, because time is, a, is much more scarce than money. He goes on in this article to point out that in the, uh, the 1950s and 60s, there were these optimistic futurists and these economists who had a vision of utopia as it relates to the future. That these, uh, these individuals were predicting a type of future for Americans that because of advanced technology, that our biggest problem would be what to do with all of the free time that we're going to have. That they were predicting that by the, uh, the, the 21st century, that our biggest issue is we're going to have too much leisure time, too much free time, too much margin. And the optimists were partly right that we've experienced a, a type of efficiency because of technology. But instead of experiencing more freedom, it seems like most people are busier than ever. Instead of the margin 
that these individuals were predicting 60, 70 years ago. We have become inseparable with our technologies. He goes on to say that it wasn't supposed to be this way. There was a a testimony before a Senate subcommittee in 1967 that predicted that by 1985, people could be working just 22 hours a week or 27 weeks a year or could retire by the age of 38. And so the major challenge facing people in the 1990s should have been what to do with all the leisure time provided by our technological advances. Now, I'll just go out on a limb this morning and just say that I'm sure very few of us have that type of issue here in 2020. See, instead, technology has inundated us with information. And we talked about this idea of FOMO last week, the fear of missing out. It's this constant perpetual feeling that we have thanks to our technologies. And yes, on one hand, the increased speed and the efficiency has enabled us to accomplish much more than what was possible a few decades ago. But this efficiency has also fostered a desire to take on additional responsibilities, that it's enabled us to try to squeeze in more activities to an already crammed calendar. He goes on in this article to talk about how uh, as the pace of our lives has increased, overcommitment and busyness have been elevated to socially desirable standards. That being busy is chic and trendy. He says, pity the poor person who has an organized life and a livable schedule. Everyone, it seems, is running out of time. Now that's true, even even biblically, We are running out of time in this life, that life is fleeting. But living as if you are running out of time will lead you down one of two paths. Either you choose the path where, yes, this is all that there is, and so I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to try to cram everything into this life because this is all that there is. Or path number two is because life is short, because time is fleeting, because James 4, 4 says life is a vapor, I'm going to invest my time in things that will matter for all of eternity. See, I think that's how the Bible talks about time. That's why Paul is saying here to make the best use of the time because we're living in the last days. That James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, right? Life is fleeting. And so having this eternal perspective on time is important because so much of our busyness is tied to our perception of time. In fact, how we spend our time is a reflection on what we truly value, I think so much of our hurriedness and us feeling overwhelmed is largely caused because we don't feel like we have enough time to get all the things that we want to get done or to experience all the things that we want to experience. So we have this hurriedness where I gotta get everything in this lifetime. I gotta get everything into this year. I've gotta get everything into this month or this week or this day. Instead of, instead of having this eternal perspective, 
where if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not only going to live 70, 80, 90 years, you're going to live forever. And so what you do in this life is going to impact all of eternity that should change the optics on how you think about your time. So Paul is saying here, we don't have a lot of time left. So we need to invest our lives in what matters. In fact, I think even embracing your finiteness in this life creates this urgency to live as wisely as possible. I think that's really the heart behind Psalm 90:12 that says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. See, when we realize that life is fleeting, it creates this wisdom and this urgency not to spend our time on this earth as if this is all that there is, but to invest it in things that will matter forever and ever, right? So we redeem the time by filling our lives and our schedules with things that will matter 10,000 years ago, right? Not filling our lives with things that are temporal, Richard Baxter says that to, he encourages us, this, he's a, a Puritan pastor in the 1600s. He said, to spend your time in nothing which you know must be repented of, in nothing on which you might not pray for the blessing of God, and in nothing in which you could not review with a quiet conscience on your dying bed, and in nothing which you might not safely and properly be found do, doing if death should surprise you in the act. She, to have this concept of time where God has given this as a gift, one in which we need to use that will impact eternity. And I think if we don't have that concept of time, it's going to suck us into this busy trap that we've been talking about. So that's one mark of, of a grace-paced life is their view on time. But secondly, I think the second way that we live a grace-paced life is we have these biblical priorities, See, naturally, you should be wondering, okay, we've got limited time. Our time on the earth impacts eternity. So how do we make the best use of our time? What does living a life wisely look like? Well, it looks like aligning our priorities with God's. See, one of the, the hardest things to do is to try to convince somebody of the necessity of priorities when they have no concept of time. And if you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know how hard that is. I feel like I'm constantly trying to come up with these creative ways of explaining to my, to my, my kids uh, about the necessity of priorities. Even this weekend when Lindsay was at the, the women's retreat, I had, had them on Friday night, you know, picked Ellie up from school. And I'm like, okay, we've got a few hours before bedtime. What do you want to do with our time? And they start throwing out all of these options, like, let's go to the children's museum. Let's go to the library. Let's wrestle. Let's build a fort. Let's go to Taco Bell, of course. And they're listing all of these things. And I'm like, no, 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 we don't have that much time to do all of those things that you want to do. What do you want to prioritize? What are the most important things that you want to do? See, I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that when you are wise as it relates to your time, it means that you are going to establish the right priorities for your life. That being wise is not living by the question, what can I do? It's living by the question, what ought I do? What should I be doing? 
And what Jesus says is our first priority, according to Matthew 6, 33, is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's really helpful, right, on one level, but it's like, what does that practically look like to seek first God's kingdom? I think that's why Paul says you need wisdom in order to take that first priority and apply it into the context and the time of your life. So we need the wisdom because a wise person knows how to establish their priorities to align with what the Bible says. Wise person knows how to say no to things that don't align to God's priorities for their life. A wise person knows the difference between urgent and important because a wise person has determined their priorities and their values, not using the world's system of efficiency and success, but God's priorities, okay? Now, I wanna take this a step deeper here this morning, and I wanna be as helpful as possible without being overly dogmatic, okay? I don't think the Bible is overly prescriptive about a lot of these things. That's why we want to use wisdom. And so I wanna show you something. This is a somewhat of a, of a helpful visual um, on what your priorities should be. This is something my mentor has shown me over the years. This is not like gospel truth, but if you're thinking through what should the priorities of my life actually look like, this is a good place to start. This is some direction, okay? If you look at the the first priority of your life, and you can notice the alliteration there, is you want to focus your first priority on your own soul. You wanna be the best person of God that you can possibly be. You wanna establish a, a priority where your relationship with God is first and foremost. And that should be reflective in how much time you spend on your own pursuit of godliness. That should be reflective on your alone time with him and the like. That has to be the first priority. The second thing here, and this is if you're married, is you wanna be the best partner with your spouse that you can possibly be. And so this should be reflective in how much time you spend with your spouse in cultivating the strongest and the most gospel-centered marriage possible. You should be spending time pursuing your spouse, serving your spouse, dying to self and loving them as best as you can. And then the third priority then comes being the best parent that you can be if you have kids. Notice this is the the third priority, not the first one, nor the second, that your parenting doesn't come above your own soul and above your marriage. I think a lot of people get kind of stuck in the busy trap because they place their children at the center of their lives, at the center of their schedules and their calendars. And that's gonna lead you down a path where you can never quite keep up with all of the things that your children are doing. Kind of living in that kid-centric home is very unwise, in my opinion. And yet at the same time, having this be the third priority of your life, you are taking responsibility in being the primary disciple maker of your child. That that's actually not the church's job. The church's job is to come alongside of you to supplement but you are to pour into your child about what it means to follow Jesus, that you're giving them an example of what a vibrant relationship with Jesus actually looks like, that you're teaching them the, the truth of God's word and, and the beauty of the gospel, and, and you're showing them and modeling what grace and repentance actually looks like. 
And then after that comes being a, a faithful parishioner, be, being someone who's committed to the church, being someone um, who is part of the church. And we would love that to be College Park Fishers, to become a member here, to officially be a, a covenant commit, uh, committed member. And if you are a member here, then we would encourage you to embrace kind of what we have said over and over again as it relates to your time with the church of this two plus one mindset where you give us two blocks of time on Sunday morning. You're attending a service and you're serving in the other or you're part of an equipping class in the other, but you're giving us two blocks on Sunday and then the one is the small group where you're part of a group of believers of doing life together in, in maturing in your faith that this should be a priority for how you live your life. And then it comes being the best provider that you can be. That yes, the Bible does speak about providing for your family and, and meeting the needs there, cultivating gifts that God has given you, making sure that your career and what you do at the workplace is an act of worship as you're the light in the darkness. But your career and your work should not come above those other priorities. To say it a different way, if, if your career and your work is negatively impacting those other priorities, then you should reconsider what type of job that you actually have. And again, there, there, there are seasons and there are different pace for different seasons and all of that. But if it's negatively impacting those things, then I would encourage you to reconsider what, what you're doing with your career. And then the last one there is um, being God's player. This is not a open dating approach. This uh, refers to uh, recreation, okay? This refers to prioritize playing and resting and developing godly friendships and just enjoying the good gifts that God has given you, right? We're gonna talk about rest and Sabbath towards the end here, but if you don't have the margin to enjoy uh, God's gifts in your life, then you should reprioritize how you are spending your time. Now, again, this is not gospel truth. This is just kind of an encouragement as you're thinking about priorities, as you're thinking about how to invest your time. Again, I'm not gonna stand up here and be overly dogmatic and tell you that you should never work more than 40 hours a week. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that you have to go on a weekly date with your spouse. I don't think the Bible is that prescriptive, but I do think that we need wisdom, as Paul puts it, and I think that we need the community of believers around us, faithful brothers and sisters, who can speak into our priorities. That if you don't have people in your life that are asking you questions about your pace, about your rhythm, about your priorities, then I don't know if you're actually going to figure this out uh, correctly. We all have blind spots. We all think that we're investing our time in things uh, th that are correct, but we need other people to have their eyes on our schedules as well. And, and at the end of the day, we want our priorities to reflect what the Bible says, not the world around us. And so I think a grace-paced lifestyle has those priorities. Now, the, the third thing here that I'll point out is if you are living a grace-paced life, if you do have biblical priorities, then that will naturally lead to developing godly habits, that your habits express your priorities tangibly. Okay, look at verse 17 here. Paul is calling us not to live as fools, but to understand what the will of the Lord actually is. Now, the Bible speaks a lot about what a fool is, especially the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. 
the Proverbs talks about a, a fool is someone who is careless. Proverbs 14, 26. A fool is someone who refuses to depend on God. Proverbs 17, 18. And so in direct contrast to that then, we don't want to be a fool. We don't want to be careless. We want to understand what the will of the Lord actually is. And when you trace Ephesians, Ephesians 1 says that the, God's will for your life is to know Jesus and to be conformed into the image of Jesus, that that's what he wants for your life. And the way that that happens, I think, is primarily through developing godly habits that express your biblical priorities. That if a fool is careless, then a wise person is intentional about the habits that are shaping them and the habits that are forming them. James K.A. Smith talks about habits this way. He says that our sanctification or the process of becoming holy and Christ-like is more like a Weight Watchers program than listening to a book on tape. That if sanctification is tantamount to closing the gap between what I know and what I do, it means changing what I want. And that requires submitting ourselves to disciplines and regimens that reach down into our deepest habits. The Spirit of God meets us in that space, in that gap, not with lightning bolts of magic, but with the concrete practices of the body of Christ that conscript bodily habits. See, habits are these actions that are so ingrained that they've become natural through continued repetition. In fact, researchers have shown that 40% of our actions on a daily basis are a product not of our choices, but of our habits. Okay, so habits not only form our schedule, not only form how we spend our time, but habits actually shape your heart, that you actually become your habits. And so transformation and change occurs when our habits match our priorities, right? When they express our priorities. James Smith goes on to say this. He says, the Lord knows that we are creatures of habit. He created us this way. That God knows that we are animated by hungers we aren't always aware of. That our wants and cravings are inscribed in us by habit-forming practices that teach us to want. If you are a creature of habit whose loves have been deformed by disordered secular liturgies, then the best gift God could give you is spirit-infused practices that will reform and retrain your loves. And so he meets us where we are with counterformative practices, with hunger-shaping rituals and love-shaping liturgies, that he gives us spirit-empowered practices as the gifts of God for the people of God. Okay, so applying this notion of forming habits in your life to the war that we're trying to wage on the busy trap, I think the, the question you should ask yourself is what are the habits that are in my life that are shaping me in becoming frantic and hurried? What type of practices that are in my life that, that are shaping me in becoming this, this anxious, busy person? See, if priorities are things that we value the most, then these habits are these spirit-infused practices that reform and they retrain what 
we love. All right, so kind of putting this all together, taking last week as kind of the, the foundation that coming at the feet of Jesus and filling and consuming our souls with the words and the presence of Jesus is the foundation for a grace-paced life. And when we do that, on top of that, uh, we, we allow our hearts to form these biblical priorities because we're spending time with Jesus. And then out of our priorities come these habits that shape who we are and what we actually love. Okay, now this morning, as we close today, I want to I want to suggest to you a couple of habits that you should have in your life in order to wage war against the busy trap. Now, there are dozens, even hundreds of habits that you should have in your life as a follower of Jesus. And if you want a list of them, you can email me. I'm happy to send those your way. But we only have time for three today. And these are more, more like umbrellas. I'm trying to squeeze in as much as possible here. Um, but these are three that I would suggest that you have in your life. The first habit is you should have a habit of, of a personal holistic health. Okay, you should have this, this habit in your life where you are trying to be the godliest, healthiest person possible. Now, this speaks into your time alone with God, which we've talked about, that time with, with God where you're preaching the gospel to yourself that is dispelling some of the lies of the busy trap. That should be a daily occurrence. But holistic health also speaks to the habits of, of having this rhythm of exercise, of, of sleeping well, of, of eating healthy. So Taco Bell in moderation, right? Those should be habits that are forming in your life because all of those things impact your pace, they impact your health, and they impact your obedience to God. If you're skipping out on exercise, on sleep, on eating right, on your time alone with God, that's going to throw yourself into the busy trap, I think, easier. And so having those habits form your life. The second thing here is rest and Sabbath. Rest and Sabbath. I think for some of us, I know this resonates with me, um, we might feel constantly overwhelmed because our days and our weeks and our years, they don't really have a rhythm to it, right? We, we're always on. We're always working. We're, we're never quite having this rhythm of working well and resting well. And yes, the Bible commands us to work well, right? To work hard. But the Bible also speaks into our, uh, our ability to rest well. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible actually commands us to rest more than the Bible commands us not to commit adultery, right? This idea of resting well, of Sabbathing, should be a habit in our lives. Time in which you're dedicating to not being on, not working, and just enjoying the gifts that God has given you. It should be a weekly rhythm, even a, a, an idea of a yearly rhythm where you're taking a Sabbath or vacation of just enjoying the gifts that God has given you. And sometimes when we think about resting or taking a Sabbath day a week, we sometimes think that we, we're doing that in order to recover from exhaustion or to prevent exhaustion. And that's true, but I want us to, I want to encourage us maybe to think about Sabbathing as more of an expression of our trust and our faith in God. That when you Sabbath, you're actually building your trust in God because you are declaring, God, I trust that you're going to fill in the gaps when I stop working. I trust, God, that you are omnipotent, 
that you are omnipresent, that you are omniscient, that I'm not, and that you're coming to God to, to receive rest, to receive satisfaction in ways that the busyness trap and the idols of our busyness can never deliver. And so having this type of habit in your life, I think, is essential against the busyness war. And then the third thing here, um, again, there are many mores, many more, but it's this idea of, of being in a committed uh, relationship with other believers or being in community with other believers, right? You can throw in having this habit of friendship with people, that there's something about having these deep, meaningful relationships in our lives that pours into our souls that should be a habit where that's occurring on a regular basis, having meaningful conversations where people are looking you in the eyes and they actually know you. They know your struggles. They, they're praying for you. They're people where you can laugh with, where you can cry with, who, who know what you are dealing with as it relates to sin, right? Having a habit of connecting with them is, is one of the best things that you can do to combat the busyness trap, right? Because one of the things that busyness wants to do is it wants to isolate you from other people, where you know a lot of people, but you don't really know a lot of people, if you know what I mean. So having these types of relationships and creating that habit and that rhythm where you are spending time with other people that are pouring into your soul is important. Again, there are more habits that I didn't speak into, but at this point, the point I think is clear. Your habits are shaping you and they are forming you. And for some of us this morning, that is a terrifying thought. For some of us today, as you're thinking about what are the habits that are shaping me, Maybe light bulbs are going off about why you feel so frantic and stressed and busy. It's because you have formed habits in your life that might reflect more of the world's values than God's values. Because the truth is, what we do with our time reflects our priorities. But what's driving what we do is reflecting what we worship. And yet the only thing that can change what we worship are these habits. And so as we kind of close out this sermon series this morning, I want you to focus on just being a, a faithful, godly person who's pursuing Jesus, and your pace is actually a reflection to the world of the truth of the gospel. Like if, if God's people are just as stressed out and busy and frantic as the rest of the world, then what is that saying about the gospel that we believe in and that we proclaim is actually true? And so whether you know it or not, your pace and, and your wrestling with, with anxiety is actually a tool of evangelism to a watching world. And so this, this idea of busyness has more, ramific, more ramifications than just your personal health. It's actually you being the light of the world to the people around you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for all the things that you've shown us in this sermon series. God, we pray that you would give us a sense of openness, Lord, over the next couple of minutes. Help us to be engaged. Help us to listen to what your spirit is telling us. Lord, help us to be receptive, Lord, to change in our lives that need to occur. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.